0: Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is our seventh episode. What? I didn't give up. No, I didn't. And today I'm happy to present Patriot Rising Part 4, our fourth and final episode in what has been our longest running and most successful show to date. So we're going places. I didn't give this warning before the last two episodes, and I kind of wish I did. But if you want to start now, you know, if you haven't listened to the last three episodes... You can, something I can do to stop you, it's your life, but I heavily encourage against it. Because like starting any TV series or any book, you know, starting at the last chapter or the last season, you might be able to put the pieces together and make something of it, but you're going to miss out on a lot. There's a lot of characters, context, and really, you're going to miss the adventure. But if you want to start now, I can't stop you. Nevertheless, Patriot Rising Part 4, the greatest of history told from the worst of dorm rooms. We left off after the British failure to secure the North, the French beginning their involvement in this war, and the beginning of the British Southern strategy. Again, I know, broken record, but bear with me. The South had not really been a scene of much conflict in this war up until late 1778. Heck, the closest thing they got to any full-fledged involvement was when the Continental Congress elected to make George Washington a Virginian the head of the Continental Army. Look, he was a great general compared to their options, but there was competition there nonetheless. And a lot of his picking was also political, as it again. Broken record, I know. But it was an attempt to show the southern colonies that this was not just a fight isolated to New England. But up until 1778, that's kind of what it looks like from a distance. If the colonies are a human body, and this is a street fight, Think of the northern colonies from Pennsylvania all the way to modern-day Vermont as the head and neck. The British early on were, well, literally going for the head and neck. They were going for the throat. They were going for the headshot. While there may have been southern figures like Patrick Henry in the south, and tons of people in the south that were sympathetic, if not full-on supportive of the cause, the fuse and the spark and the powder keg really was all taking place in New England. So the British were going for, in their eyes, the knockout blow early in Massachusetts and later New York, then look to choke the Americans out, a metaphorical submission attempt by trying to cut off New England in 1777. But the British failed to take the Americans out of the fight. And now there's a third fighter that is now themselves looking at England's head and neck, the French. England had two-thirds of their army in North America at this point. Then in a blink of an eye, their next-door neighbor and global arch-rival is looking for blood. So not just are the head and neck of England now exposed, their body and their metaphorical arms are fair game. The British will turn this once-regional conflict of, let's be blunt, drunk farmers against a strong but reserved military force into a global conflict between the two world juggernauts, spanning from the English Channel to Central America to the far reaches of Asia. But the revisionist history movement works like a pendulum. For one period of time, the revolution was a great American cause, single-handedly won by the Americans. Then later, different eras of historians have and will re-examine it from a new angle through their own lens For example, maybe the issue of slavery becomes more important than previously taught and or understood. But the one part of this war that has sort of slowly come to the forefront is how really game-changing the French involvement really is. But when it first, you know, sort of entered popular understanding, it was done in a very negative tone, essentially from what I perceived as more of an attempt to discredit more of the existing pro-American perspectives of this conflict. And there are those who deny it was important and negate the alliance completely. Look, I went to a good school, but the French involvement was really nothing more than a tiny blurb under a picture saying something like, the French joining the American side provided valuable naval support or something. Look, I'm not going to lie, that was definitely paraphrased, but you get the idea nonetheless. However, on the placement of French involvement in the war, in my mind, I feel like I am very even-keelted about the whole thing. I do not believe in taking away the credit and the lore of the original American cause and the bravery and the sacrifice and the incredible tenacity that allowed this cause to exist past the events on the Lexington Green. Battle still had to somehow be won, and the revolutionists still had to not lose to a superior British military force. And the last battle that the two fought truly head-to-head was Monmouth. And that showed unequivocally that the American cause was getting stronger on its own. On the other hand, though, while the American cause was getting stronger, the British were still, well, the British. And while the Americans were cracking out upset victory after upset victory, the British were probably still the pre-Vegas, Vegas odds favorite. The British, well, yes, in a peculiar position of keeping the colonists in the crown's orbit, Even if they beat them in open combat, we're struggling to do even that. But let's take a step back. France didn't just hear about America's victory at Saratoga, then reach out to the Americans like, hey, you want some help? No, that did not happen. What really happened is the anti-monarchy leaders of the revolution, in the form of John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, went to arguably the second, if not most powerful monarchy on earth to try and negotiate an alliance, all before Saratoga. In fact, their attempts started in 1776. John Adams wanted to live a simple life, while Franklin lived in, quote, opulence when in Paris, end quote. The two were complete opposites. Adams struggled immensely to communicate through the language and cultural barriers that existed, but Benjamin Franklin, on the other hand, flourished Interestingly, Adams' communications back to the Continental Congress indicate that he believed Franklin was too old for the task at hand and did not think he was the man for the job. But the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4, 1776, and part of its signing was to show the world's powers that the Americans meant business and were soliciting help. And Franklin, nevertheless, was sent to France. But according to the American scholar, quote, Franklin was met with an electrifying welcome. He was the best known American in the world, largely on account of his scientific work. But no one could say with any authority what exactly he was doing in France. The theories were multiple. Franklin had come for his health, the climate of France being gentler than that of America. He had come to supply his grandsons with a European education. He had come to see his works published. It was equally asserted that Franklin had sailed as a fugitive, having quarreled with Congress in order to protest his countrymen's decision to reconcile with England, to discuss a commercial treaty with France, to sue for peace with the British, to secure his bank account, to ensure that the future American generations would be, quote, Frenchified. The Portuguese ambassador reported on Franklin's plans to retire to a Swiss chateau with his immense fortune the Saxon ambassador stubbornly refused to believe that the chief of the rebels could conceivably even be in France at all, end quote. A lot of theories there, so Benjamin Franklin almost is going on what seems to be a covert mission, because we now, from the 21st century, understand why he was there, but at the time, the world didn't really know. In 1776, the colonies were without ammunition, they were running low on money, their credit was in shambles, but they knew, however, who their friends were, Well, maybe not their friends, but they knew at least who England's enemies were. And France, of course, topped that list. And in fact, unbeknownst to Franklin or to any American who was trying to get this alliance to work, the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs had been studying the American revolt far longer than the colonies had even considered. Now, Franklin's French, to say at least, was basic. Like high school level, if you look at it from a modern understanding. Now, Franklin gives great hope to those of us who speak language imperfectly. On the page he veered from the clumsy to the comical, he acknowledged that a man plunging into a language not his own automatically sacrifices half of his intelligence. And he simultaneously established an enduring truism of French life. He was the brand of freestyle French permitted only to those of exceptional talent, who, attempting to clamp their jaws around the language, are understood regardless of the results and by virtue of their audible disregard for their inhibitions. To be acknowledging with every mutilated syllable the superiority of France. But he forged ahead nonetheless, and in broken French, indifferent to the informers, oblivious in a sort of Mr. Magoo-type way, to the social gaffes, seemingly oblivious to the impossible odds his countrymen faced from across the ocean. His arrival in Paris coincided with the news of General Washington's late August defeat at Long Island. But Franklin just shrugs off the report as being insignificant. And everywhere he went, he carried the same message. Long Island affords the British no strategic advantage. And Franklin fights a war of disinformation with very little help from his American counterparts. He had no choice but to inflate the American troop numbers, you know, the actual number being 14,000, to up to 80,000. He dismissed defeats and dismissed true claims of supply issues the Americans faced. For 18 months, he kept his mental game going with the French. But on September 7, 1777, he finally began to worry. As the French informed him, by the way, in perfect English, that they were losing interest. Of course we know. In less than a month, the Americans would beat Burgoyne at the Second Battle of Saratoga. And after that, the French were willing to throw in their lot with the Americans. So you have to appreciate what Benjamin Franklin does here. He spends two years, well, just under, he spends 18 months in France, lying his way just to maintain a spot in the French's ear. He's making up numbers about how strong they are, how well off the British actually really are and he's able to stall and sort of fake it till you make it until the Americans eventually make it. But now, onto the south. Before the war, you know, during the build up and even into the actual conflict, the British quote made great sport of those who claimed freedom for themselves but denied it to others. end quote. And the British realized that the American answer to this varied night and day amongst the population. There were those that agreed, like Abigail Adams, who stated that, quote, I wish most sincerely there was not a slave in the province, end quote. There were those that sort of agreed, and that they were to free their slaves in the near future, and that Britain should stop driving the trade and then pretending to act innocent. And some just outright blamed others, like the King of England. Now, someone who actually blamed others was Thomas Jefferson. He asserted that the King of England was the reason why slavery existed. Another argument was actually supporting slavery in a biblical sense, but the most perverse argument came out of Georgia, and it was the idea that slavery was actually for humanitarian good in order to teach obedience or whatnot to what was in their eyes a lesser people. This one was a very deeply entrenched idea, and it worked hand in hand with the argument that it was beneficial economically to maintain the institution of slavery. Quote, Free labor boosts profits. It's So the argument really ends up being free labor boosts profits, it's supported by God, and it's good for them. And that was the winning argument amongst those who supported it. Now, things like this are important to acknowledge and look at in the eyes in understanding this conflict. It was not a clear cut, good versus evil, right versus wrong, with clear lines drawn to distinguish the two. Now, here's the cause that hopefully all of us can agree is based and pretty much mostly good values. We want to smash the monarchy. We want to become an independent state. We want to be a republic. We want to give power to the people. But at the same time, the Americans have to juggle the fact that they are benefiting humongously from the institution of slavery. And it can almost seem hypocritical that while they're fighting for freedom for themselves, they are intentionally withholding that freedom from others. And the British know this, and the British know that in the South, there's a wide variety of opinions regarding slavery and the Revolution. And they turn their eyes truly to the American South. Now, after taking Savannah, the British look to execute a war-winning plan. The Hessians, accompanied by a substantial British force, were moved to South Carolina to execute a plan that came out of London that was devised by Lord George Germain and King George III himself. Lord Germain wrote to General Henry Clinton stating that because of the well-established fact that the south was teeming with loyalists, the region would be easy to conquer. Quote, "If even a small force landed at Cape Fear and made an impression on North Carolina, it is not doubted that large numbers of the inhabitants would flock to the king's standard and that his majesty's government would be restored." End quote. After taking Savannah, The British seized the rest of Georgia in the late winter of 1778 and into the early winter months of 1779 with the taking of Augusta. Now, after losing Augusta, the Americans looked to counterattack and recoup lost ground. After losing Savannah, the Continental Congress removed Robert Howe and replaced him with Bostonian Major General Benjamin Lincoln. Now, this Benjamin Lincoln character becomes the Southern Department Commander And this Lincoln character had given the British trouble before, and he had proven to the Continental Congress that he was able to motivate militias, which were to play a huge role in the South. However, he had never commanded Southern militiamen. Remember how everyone, even George Washington, who was a Virginian, despised the New England militiamen? Well, it just so happens that the New England militiamen were Lincoln's forte. So just as the Southerners, like Washington, had trouble galvanizing the New Englanders, the New Englanders, like Lincoln, had trouble galvanizing the Southerners. But nonetheless, after Lincoln is made commander of the Southern Department, his first task was to retake Georgia. Now, there's nothing quite like springtime in Augusta, Georgia. While Tiger Woods reclaimed his place at Augusta this past spring, in early May of 1779, Lincoln, too, reclaimed Augusta, Georgia. Now, Jim Nance was probably still only in elementary school at the time, so he might not have been commentating this one, but I digress. By September of 1779, Lincoln turned his force to Savannah to retake it. And to assist him, he was joined by a French admiral in laying siege to Savannah. Again, this is where the French become important because without the French in the war, the idea of retaking Savannah would have been preposterous. It would not even have been considered but now the Americans have an elite Navy assisting them. The siege ends up being pretty intense, but the British manage to hold out for a month, and by October, the French Navy are looking at winter dead in the eyes and have no choice but to end up abandoning the siege and sail to the West Indies for the winter. Lincoln, now without his vital naval support, was forced to give up the siege and return to Charleston, South Carolina. Realizing that the American force was beginning to congregate in Charleston, General Henry Clinton decided to leave New York himself and bring a force to South Carolina, take Charleston and make a potentially decisive blow to the Americans. So in December of 1779, after a bit of delay, Clinton and an army of a little more than 8,500 soldiers transported by a naval force of roughly 5,000 sailors begin to make their way down the coast. Rough weather splits the fleet up, but on March 11th, the British are now in South Carolina and are beginning to fortify their position, which is located where the Wapo Creek flowed into the Ashley River. Instead of immediately going after Charleston, though, the British actually moved north, away from Charleston, and slowly began securing plantations. Remember, the British had this whole plan to rustle up loyalist support to help the cause, and on the 29th, 1780, the British began to move on to Charleston, and established a position on the Charleston Neck. And on April 1st, they began to slowly inch closer while beginning to construct their siege works. For those that don't know, Charleston is a city on the ocean. So while the British Army was establishing itself on land around the city, there was, and will still is, a natural harbor that the Americans looked to secure with four frigates that were sent from the Continental Congress. However, when the American naval commander looked out his telescope and saw the size of the incoming British fleet, he scuttled all of his ships. The Charleston Harbor was now almost entirely unguarded. So you have an elite army force on land looking to kill you, and now you're fully boxed in by the undisputed best navy of all time to that date, all while you're stuck there with a huge portion of the Continental Army. Things are beginning to look dire quickly. And on the evening of April 13, 1780, Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton of the British Army gave orders for his men to engage in a silent march to cut off the last road into Charleston. The Americans were pretty much cut off, but they had a road where they were getting some communications out, and the British looked to cut that off. While on the march, they intercepted a messenger with a letter from an American soldier written to General Lincoln and then we were able to ascertain where the Americans and how the Americans were deployed. So, in the wee hours of the morning on the 14th, the British reached the American position, caught them completely by surprise, and routed them. The Americans were now truly trapped. And on the 21st of April, Lincoln realizes that he is totally screwed and out of options completely. And he begins surrender negotiations with Clinton. However, Clinton was so sure of his position that he declined the very lenient terms put forward by the Americans, and the two sides just began shelling each other. Lincoln had sort of asked for an honorable surrender, you know, to walk out with his colors, have his flag out, and to sort of have an honorable walk out of the city. But Clinton realized that he pretty much had the Americans in checkmate, was not going to let them get away with that. And he didn't. So for the next two weeks, the British began to just tighten their chokehold on the city, eventually draining the canal that supplied fresh water to the city and repelled the fleeting American counterattacks. Lincoln's surrender terms were shot down again, and on May 11th, the British fired red-hot shot that began to burn the city down. And this is finally where Lincoln gives in and decides to accept unconditional surrender. All the American soldiers that were in Charleston were now prisoners of war, including Lincoln. However, the Americans did get their officers back, including Lincoln, in a prisoner swap with the British. But this was devastating. This was their largest loss of men in the entire war for the American cause. There was now virtually no continental army force in the South, leading Congress to appoint Major General Horatio Gates, the one from Saratoga, to replace Lincoln. And in early June... Henry Clinton of the British, had done what he came to do and gave General Cornwallis the reins of the Southern British Army as he sailed back to New York. He said, oh, they're all in Charleston. I'm going to come down and make sure this gets done myself. Comes down, takes Charleston, and then says, I've done what I came to do. Here you go, Cornwallis. You can have the reins. But General Clinton gave one order to General Cornwallis before he left, and that was to maintain possession of Charleston above all else. He was not to move into North Carolina if it jeopardized Charleston one bit. And after Charleston, the only thing resembling any form of a patriot resistance in South Carolina were militia partisan companies. So the Continental Army had no choice but to try to reform themselves in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Horatio Gates arrives in late July. And he gets there and he meets with local militia and he meets with the existing or what's less, of the Continental Army commanders However, he immediately goes against the advice of the council. And before he even knows the full capabilities of the troops now under his command, he orders a march into South Carolina. Now again, broken record, but Horatio Gates was the leader of the American force that destroyed Burgoyne's at Saratoga. whether he knew or just didn't care or simply didn't know that a significant number of his troops were untested militia companies that even some of the Continentals under his command had little battlefield experience, if any, shows that he might be making a little brash move. But nevertheless, Gates decides to move into Camden in late July of 1780, a crossroad city that, in his eyes, was a crucial part of winning back the Carolinas. And General Cornwallis, who, remember, had taken over duties for the southern British force, becomes aware of Gates's movements and departs Charleston with a force that, when linked up with the British force that's already stationed in Camden on August 13th, gave the British a total number of just over 2,000 men. This is a large number, but the Americans on paper had almost double the men. But there's a catch. Only 1,500 of the American soldiers were regulars. On the right flank, Horatio Gates places DeKalb's 2nd Maryland and Delaware regiments. On the left flank, he places 2,500 untrained North Carolina and other assorted southern militiamen. With this formation, whether he knows this or not, puts untested militiamen directly up against the most experienced of the present British regiments. Whoops. Pound for pound, the forces have roughly the same number of regular troops at 1,500 apiece, and the British fill out the rest with 600 men made up of the loyalists that they are banking on and Irish volunteers. And both armies advanced at each other just after dawn. The British troops opened the battle by immediately firing a volley into the untried militiamen on the American left, then engaged in a bayonet charge. Look, von Steuben may have taught the Continental regulars how to use a bayonet, But that did not carry well, if any bit, into the militiamen, as they themselves didn't even have bayonets to begin with. And the left flank begins to run away in sheer terror. And who can blame them? What? Are you going to fight bayonets with your bare hands? You've never fought a bayonet before? What are you going to do, just stand there and take it? Probably not. But panic is contagious. And the quick and disorderly retreat of all these militiamen caused the untested North Carolina militiamen to panic themselves and flee. Heck, the Virginia militia accompanying this left flank ran away so quickly that they only suffered three casualties. So now all but only 800 Continentals were facing over 2,000 British troops. Cornwallis, rather than fight a sustained fight with heavy losses, ordered Tarleton's cavalry to charge the rear of the Continental line. The British are learning. Bunker Hill saw the British just march headfirst into a slugfest, but now the British are beginning to learn something they seemed incapable of doing throughout this war. The cavalry charge broke up the formation of the Continental Regular Troops, and they finally broke and fled. After just one hour of combat, the American troops had been utterly defeated, suffering over 2,000 casualties. Charleston's cavalry pursued and harassed the retreating continental troops for 20 miles before he finally reined it all in. By that evening, Gates had had to go all the way back to Charlotte. Things were not looking good. Saratoga feels a long way away for Horatio Gates. And by September, Cornwallis invaded North Carolina, with his final objective being to march into Virginia. To protect his troops from a guerrilla attack, Cornwallis ordered Ferguson to move northward into western North Carolina before joining the main British army in Charlotte. Again, the British are learning from their mistakes. Burgoyne in 1777 just marched through the woods only to get chewed up by guerrilla fighters. But by 1780, Cornwallis was having none of that and wasn't going to fall for the same tricks. And in late September, Ferguson sends a message to Colonel Isaac Shelby, whom for all Ferguson could ascertain, was the leader of the guerrilla fighters that he called the Backwater Men. The message said that if Shelby and his men did not give up their opposition to the British, Ferguson would march his army over the mountains, hang their leaders, and quote, lay the country waste with fire and sword, end quote. But the Patriots did not care much for Ferguson's threats, and instead prepared for battle On September 25th, Patriot leaders marched five days through the snowy mountains to connect with even more frontiersmen before beginning a move toward the town Ferguson was in, which is known as Gilbert Town. But Ferguson was alerted by some spies that the Patriots were on their way. However, the only reason Ferguson had stayed at Gilbert Town in the first place was that he was hoping to intercept another Patriot force that he thought was heading northward. Realizing he was now all of a sudden in a pickle, surrounded by what he described as quote, backwater men. A set of mongrels, end quote, Ferguson begins to march towards Charlotte to receive the protection of Cornwallis' main army, and at the same time, sends out a cry for help to all the supposed loyalists that would join up in arms to assist the crown. On October 6th, Ferguson is alerted by spies that these mongrels of sorts were closing in behind him. Camping at Kings Mountain near the North Carolina border, he sent a message to Cornwallis requesting reinforcements, quote, three or four hundred good soldiers would finish the business. Something must be done soon, end quote. And the Patriots finally get to Gilbert Town, but Ferguson had already, as we know, gotten out of Dodge. But Isaac Shelby became elated when he heard that Ferguson was quoted as saying that he was, quote, on Kings Mountain that he was the king of the mountain, and that God Almighty and the rebels of hell could not drive him from it. End quote. The Patriots hear this news and march through the night and into the next day through pouring rain and intermittent showers and reached King's Mountain the next day, Saturday, October 7th, just after noon. King's Mountain is an outlying portion of the Blue Ridge Mountains, for those that don't know. It's a heavily wooded and very rocky area, and the mountain itself rises 60 feet above the plains surrounding it. The campsite was ideally a place Ferguson wanted to be, because the mountain has a plateau at its summit. The plateau is 600 yards long and 70 feet wide at one end and 120 feet wide at the other. The Scotsman Ferguson considered the summit too steep for anyone to scale it. But upon arriving at Kings Mountain, the Patriot soldiers formed in a horseshoe formation around the base of the mountains behind their leaders, who remained on horseback. And Ferguson was right in believing that his would be attackers would expose themselves to immediate musket fire if they attempted to scale the summit. But Ferguson did not realize his men could only fire if the Americans went out into the open and outright exposed themselves in the first place. What Ferguson failed to realize, or at least failed to appreciate, was that most of the Patriot troops here were skilled hunters who routinely killed fast-moving animals. And the fighting begins around 3 p.m., with the Patriots taking up positions hidden in the heavily wooded areas. And two Patriot regiments tore up Loyalist fighters at the same time, catching them in a crossfire. These Loyalist fighters try to turn around and fire a volley of their own, but we're just firing into dense woods. The two Patriot regiments marched toward Ferguson's men, but were driven back twice by Loyalist fire. But as one of these regiments was driven back, the other would advance. But to keep the line, Ferguson has no choice but to continually shift his reserves from one place to another, while continuing to take heavy losses from the concealed American sharpshooters in the trees. Eventually, the Patriots wear down the British line and advance toward Ferguson himself. Now on one side, you have these hunters not dressed in bright colors and on the other you have ferguson wearing a checkered shirt over his uniform and blowing a shiny silver whistle that from all patriot accounts could be heard over the gunfire so he's pretty noticeable to say the least and after just shy of an hour of fighting ferguson falls from his horse out of nowhere and is seen dangling from one foot still in the stirrup American sharpshooters had riddled him with as many as eight bullets. He died before he even hit the ground. And he was the only British casualty of the whole battle because the rest were Americans, either loyalist or patriot. And just like at Saratoga, the collapse of a British leader caused his force to disintegrate. The second in command for the British throws up the white flag almost immediately after, and the Americans have done the unthinkable. All in all, 225 Loyalists were killed, 163 were wounded, 716 were taken prisoner, and only 28 Patriots were killed. Once word of this defeat reaches Cornwallis, he's rattled. While he remained in Charlotte for a few days, he soon began withdrawing back into South Carolina to the British Post at Winsboro. The British could not count on reinforcements from South Carolina Post to help them, and the victory at Kings Mountain had revived Patriot hopes again. The victory triggered bonfires and street dancing in the cities held by the Patriots. Soon, Patriot leaders such as Thomas Sumter, Elijah Clark, and Francis Marion stepped up their harassment of British troops. Patriot sympathizers increased their assaults on their loyalist neighbors. The battle at Kings Mountain was not just a turning point in the Southern Theater, but the war itself. It halted the British advance into North Carolina for the time being, and because Lord Cornwallis was forced to retreat from Charlotte into South Carolina to wait for reinforcements, this gave the Americans valuable time to reorganize their army that had been completely shooken up after the defeat at Charleston. Now Cornwallis might have been rattled to hear about this defeat, but when General Henry Clinton learned of his men's defeat at Kings Mountain, He was reported to have called it, quote, the first link in a chain of evils that I fear might lead to the collapse of the British plans to squash this rebellion, end quote. But the Americans still need to reorganize themselves. They have the time to do it, but in an effort to get the sort of going, George Washington made Nathaniel Green the new commander of the Southern Department of the Continental Forces, and Daniel Morgan, who we remember from Saratoga, arrived on the scene. Remember, he was the sharpshooter guy. He was the one that led that group of people that tore up the British Army at Saratoga. And he is a grizzled veteran, having fought from the time of the French and Indian War to tearing it up during the Revolution. And by this time, Cornwallis was returning to his plans to take North Carolina, plans that, as we know, had been delayed due to the loss at Kings Mountain. Cornwallis received word that Daniel Morgan was gonna attack the important British fort at 96 South Carolina. Now look, looking to save the fort and defeat Morgan's command, Cornwallis was going to take that opportunity immediately. And on January 2nd, he ordered Lieutenant Colonel Tarleton to the west. Tarleton and the Legion marched to 96, but found that Morgan was not there and was not looking to attack the fort at all. The information that Cornwallis was given was inaccurate. Yet and still, Tarleton decided to pursue Morgan anyway. Tarleton asked for reinforcements of British regulars, which Cornwallis sent. Tarleton then set out with his larger command to drive Morgan across the Broad River. And on the 12th, he received news of Morgan's location and continued with hard marching, building boats to cross rivers that were flooding with winter rains, and Morgan, receiving word that Tarleton was in hot pursuit, retreated north, all in an attempt to avoid being trapped between Tarleton and Cornwallis. And by the afternoon of the 16th, Morgan was approaching the Broad River, which again was high with floodwaters, and was reportedly unbelievably difficult to cross. But he knew Tarleton was close behind him. He had to do something, so by nightfall he reached a place called Cow Pens, a well-known grazing area for local cattle. Pickens, who had been patrolling, arrived that night with a large body of militia. Morgan then decided something that was going to change the course of the war. Morgan decided to stand and fight Tarleton rather than to continue to retreat and risk being caught by Tarleton while he was floating across the river. Tarleton, on his own accord, receives word of Morgan's location at Cowpens and made haste, forcing his army at three in the morning to go after him instead of letting them camp for the night. Now Daniel Morgan had to make something happen if he was going to fight this force. He turned to his advantage of the landscape at Cowpens. He was going to utilize the varying reliability of his troops. He was going to try and use his opponents' overconfidence against them, all while working on a tight timetable because he knows that Tarleton's going to arrive any moment now. He knew that untrained militiamen, which composed a large portion of his force, were generally not reliable in battle, something Horatio Gates had seemingly forgotten at the Battle of Camden and in the past had routed the first hint of defeat and abandoned the regular soldiers, as we saw in Camden again. So he knows that these untrained militiamen are a liability, and so to eliminate the possibility that these untrained militiamen just retreat at the first sight of a British soldier, he defies normal convention by placing his army between two rivers, thus making escape impossible if their army was routed. He's throwing all of his lot in, Essentially saying, there's nowhere to run, you're going to have to stay and fight. Now, selecting a low hill as the center of his position, he placed his continental infantry on it. Deliberately leaving his flanks exposed to his opponent. With a ravine on their right flank and a creek on their left flank, Morgan reasoned his forces were protected against British flanking maneuvers at the beginning of the battle. Morgan begins to plan off of Tarleton's overconfidence, would be a good way to put it. He knows Tarleton thinks this battle will be a wipeout, just as most of the battles in the South had been. So he anticipates that Tarleton's force will march onto him head-on. But to make sure that the British do in fact come head-on, Morgan arranged his troops in a way that encouraged Tarleton to do just that. Morgan decided to set up three distinct line of soldiers. One comprised of sharpshooters, one of militiamen, and the third and final one of Continental regulars. The first line of the sharpshooters had about 150 men to be exact, and behind them were 300 militiamen. So, by putting the weaker force of militia and sharpshooters front and center, it did two things. On one hand, it baited the British to attack how and where the Americans wanted. But on the second, it concealed the third and strongest American line, which was made up of the Continental regulars. So these weaker soldiers would bait the British in, all while taking down as many of them as they could, only to bring them face first with the best soldiers that the Americans had. Morgan asked the militia to fire two volleys, something that she knew they could achieve. He wasn't asking for too much, because Morgan is now playing off the skills that he has in front of him. And he tells him when the second volley's been fired, retreat to the left and reform in the back behind the third line. The militia, to further sell the British into going where Morgan wanted, would execute, in effect, a feigned route. The third line, however, could be expected to stand and fight against the British. Morgan expected that the British advancing uphill and getting taken off by sharpshooters would make them disorganized and weaken both physically and psychologically before they even got to the best American soldiers. The third line would also withdraw a short distance to add to the appearance of a retreat. Morgan is essentially doing what we talked about in our very first series, The Han, when these steppe nomads would do a feigned retreat, which is essentially where an army sort of pretends to be beaten. Because as we know, in ancient warfare, the most casualties happen when an army routes. So by faking a route, it forces the army that thinks they're winning to follow this army deeper and deeper and deeper, until the retreater is actually in an advantageous position, turns around, and surrounds the army that had been pursuing them. Now, in developing his tactics at Cowpens, historian John Buchanan wrote that Morgan may have been, quote, the only general in the American Revolution, on either side, to produce a significant, original, tactical thought, end quote. And just as Morgan wants, the British drove in successive lines, anticipating victory only to encounter another, stronger American line, after exerting themselves so hard to push through the one they had just gotten through and had already suffered so many casualties, and the depth of the American lines began to slowly soak up the British advance. And at approximately 6.45 a.m., which is just before sunrise, Tarleton himself emerged from the woods in front of the American position. Tarleton ordered his dragoons, which was their light cavalry, to attack the first line of skirmishers, who opened fire, dropped 15 dragoons, causing them to promptly retreat, where Tarleton immediately orders an infantry charge instead, without pausing at all to study the American deployment whatsoever, or to even allow the rest of his infantry and cavalry reserve to make it out of the woods in the first place. Tarleton attacked the sharpshooter line without pausing. The American skirmishers, the sharpshooters, whatever you want to call them, kept firing as they withdrew to join the second line, manned by the militiamen, and the British attacked again, this time reaching the militiamen who, as they were ordered by Morgan, fired two volleys into the British, who, with 40% of their casualties being officers, were astonished and confused. Remember Saratoga, Daniel Morgan, and the sharpshooters taking out all the officers? The playbook remains the same. These guys can shoot, and they're going to go for the leadership of the British army. And they're doing just that, to devastating effect. But the British still nonetheless reformed themselves and continued to advance. Tarleton responded by ordering one of his officers, named Ogilvy, to charge him with some dragoons into, quote, the defeated Americans, end quote. His men moved forward in regular formation and were momentarily checked by the militia musket fire, but they still continued to advance. The militiamen of the second line fired their second volley finally and filed around the American left to the rear just as Morgan had planned. Taking the withdrawal of the first two lines as a full-blown retreat, again, just as Morgan had hoped they would, the British advanced headlong into the third and final line, which was, again, comprised of disciplined regulars who were awaiting them on the hill. The British had been fighting for nearly an hour They had been marching since 3 in the morning. They were tired from all that marching, and they were becoming increasingly disorganized as the fatigue and lack of officers weighed down on their force. But when they saw the militia withdrawing, they truly believed the Americans were on the run and said, screw it, charged, broke formation, and advanced in what has been described as a chaotic mass. Morgan ordered a volley. The militia stopped their withdrawal and made an about-face which is where you pivot 180 degrees and outpoint your guns at your pursuers. The Virginian militiamen, in this case, fired into the British at a range of no more than 30 yards. While muskets aren't accurate, that had a deadly effect, and it caused the British to lurch to a complete halt. And that's when the Americans gave their own order to charge bayonets. The Continental Army, as ordered, mounted a full-scale bayonet charge. Tarleton's force faced with its second terrible surprise, began to quickly collapse. Some began surrendering on the spot. Others turned and ran. Militiamen charged forward and seized the British cannon, American cavalry, and then came from the left and hit the British from the rear and created the only double envelopment of the entire war. If you don't know what a double envelopment is, think about the Battle of Cannae, where the Carthaginians completely surrounded the Romans by 360 degrees and slowly crushed them. That's exactly what's happening here. Nearly half of the British and Loyalist infantrymen fell to the ground, whether they were actually wounded or not, and their ability to fight had just vanished. Historian Lawrence Babbitt diagnosed, quote, combat shock as the cause for this abrupt collapse. The effects of all that exhaustion, all the hunger, for marching all those hours at that breakneck speed and the fact that they had just fought through two lines, only to be met by a third, began to catch up with them. Realizing that they were caught in a double envelopment, many of the British began to surrender on the spot. Tarleton, however, tried in vain to rescue his force, but again, to no avail, and after just over an hour of fighting, the Americans had won. In the end, Morgan's army took 712 prisoners, which included 200 wounded. Even worse for the British, the forces that they had lost, especially in the legions and in the cavalry, constituted the cream of the crop for Cornwallis' army. Additionally, 110 British soldiers were killed in action, which rendered Tarleton suffering an astounding 86% casualty rate, and his brigade had been all but wiped out as a fighting force. Upon hearing the news of the young Tarleton's defeat, who, by the way, was only 26 Cornwallis placed his sword tip on the ground and leaned onto it until the blade snapped in half. Tarleton was young, he was reckless, and he wanted to beat Morgan. But in the haste to reach Morgan and get to the battlefield, he caused his soldiers to be in desperate need of rest and in desperate need of food. Because maybe in his eyes, he really wanted a victory. Maybe he thought, like every other battle in the South, that had because it had been easy, this one would be too. But he seemed to be so concerned with pursuing Morgan that he literally just kind of forgot that his men needed to be in fighting condition to fight a battle. And this negligence caught up with him here. So in 1781, Cornwallis, who had had it all going for him after the Battle of Camden, all of a sudden was losing his ability to fight this war. And that brings us to Yorktown. Yorktown. Now, while the French may not have been involved in cow pens whatsoever, the Battle of Yorktown shows where this alliance really begins to take its grip. In 1780, French soldiers had landed in Rhode Island in an attempt to help their American allies in assaulting, which is still British-occupied New York City. We haven't talked about New York City since George Washington lost there in the beginning of the war. That's because the British have just been holding on to it this whole time. And the two armies met, the Americans and the French, and the French said that, look, we'd love to help you take New York, but it's going to be pretty hard to do. And by the way, our Navy is going to the West Indies this winter anyway. So we could probably work something out where, when, where our Navy is going south. We can stop along the southern coast on the way and help you there. So they agree to attack Lord Cornwallis and his 9,000-man army, which was stationed in the port city of Yorktown, Virginia. But to do this the french needed a naval victory but that happens in the beginning of september when the french defeated a british fleet that had come for the sole purpose to relieve cornwallis at the battle of the chesapeake as a result of this victory the french were able to block any escape by sea for cornwallis but knowing that the british were trapped george washington asks french general marquis de lafayette to contain cornwallis in yorktown until he arrived you know Look, okay, we got him. Now just hold him there because we're going to come and try to finish the job. And George Washington begins to march with French General Rochambeau on August 19th. And this becomes known as the celebrated march. And it's half French soldiers, half American, about 4,000 French, 3,000 American. And they begin to march in Newport, Rhode Island. And the rest remain behind to protect the Hudson Valley. Washington wanted to keep absolute secret as to where they were headed. Washington even sends out fake dispatches that reach Clinton and actually convince Clinton that the Franco-American army was going to launch the attack on New York that they seemed to want to do. And this made it seem that Cornwallis was not in any danger. And in August, Henry Clinton sends that fleet that ended up losing to the French. They didn't realize how big the French fleet in the Americas really was. And forced this fleet to sail back to New York. And on September 14th, George Washington arrived in Williamsburg, Virginia. So they were looking to siege the city, much like how the British had seized Charleston. And on September 26th, transports with artillery, siege tools, and even more French infantry arrived at the northern end of the Chesapeake Bay. Giving Washington command of an army of 7,800 Frenchmen, 3,100 militiamen, and 8,000 Continentals, all while facing a 9,000-man British army. And on early on September 28th, Washington led the army out of Williamsburg and surrounded Yorktown. The French took up positions on the left, while the Americans took up the position of honor on the right. Cornwallis had a chain of seven readouts and batteries that were linked together by earthworks. That day, Washington decides to attack the British defenses, and decides that these defenses could just be bombarded into submission. The Americans and the French spent the night of the 28th sleeping out in the open, while working parties built bridges over the marsh, and some American soldiers went out and hunted wild hogs to eat. The two armies here are working together, like a true alliance. And on September 29th, George Washington moved his army even closer to Yorktown, and the British gunners see the infantry and begin to open up fire. So throughout the day, the British cannon begin firing upon the Americans, but there aren't that many casualties. And some Hessian Yeagers and American riflemen have some skirmish, but nothing seems to really happen. But realizing he was severely outnumbered and completely surrounded, Cornwallis pulled back from all of his outer defenses, except... For three, there was a readout on the west side of the town, and their readouts named Readout 9 and Readout 10 were in the east. Cornwallis had his forces occupy the earthworks immediately surrounding the town because he had received a letter from Clinton which promised a relief force of 5,000 men within a week, and he wished to tighten his lines. The Americans and French occupied the abandoned defenses and began to establish their own batteries there. With the British outer defenses now in their hands, Allied engineers began to lay out positions for the artillery. The men improved their works and deepened the trenches. The British also were working on their own defenses, so both sides are beginning to dig in. And on September 30th, the French decided to attack the West British redoubt. The skirmish lasts about two hours, and the French were repulsed and lost tons of people. But on October 1st, the Allies learned from a British deserter that, in order to preserve their food, the British had had hundreds of horses slaughtered and thrown onto the beach. In the American camp, thousands of trees were being cut down so that wood could be used for their earthworks. Preparations for the parallel also began. But as the Allies were looking to put up more artillery and were looking to build out more artillery nests, the British kept up a steady fire to disrupt them. They began to increase the amount of artillery they were firing, and on October 2nd, the Allies suffered moderate casualties from British firing. But George Washington, being the stoic leader he actually really was, made continued visits to the front, despite concerns that the enemy fire would pose a danger to him. And on the night of October 2nd, the British opened a storm of fire to cover up troop movements of the British cavalry, where they were to escort their infantry on a foraging party. But on the 3rd, the foraging party went out and collided with French soldiers. And the French soldiers were being accompanied by American militiamen, and the British cavalry quickly retreated back behind their defensive lines and lost 50 men. So now foraging is becoming a problem for the British. But by October 5th, Washington was almost ready to open the first parallel. That night, the sappers and miners worked putting strips of pine on the wet sand to mark the path of the trenches. After nightfall of the 6th of October, troops moved out in the stormy weather to dig the first parallel. The heavy overcast skies negated the waning moon and shielded the massive digging operation from the eyes of British sentries. Washington, being the leader he was, took several ceremonial blows to start this trench. The trench was going to be 2,000 yards long running from the head of Yorktown all the way to the York River. Half the trench was to be commanded by the French, the other half by Americans. On the northernmost point of the French line, a support trench was dug so they could bombard the British ships in the river if any showed up. The French were ordered to distract the British with a false attack, but the British were told of this by a French deserter. So the British artillery answers this report by firing directly onto the French. Now, on October 7th, the British saw the new Allied trench was just out of musket range. Over the next two days, the Allies completed all their gun placements and dragged the artillery into line. Then the British fire began to weaken when they saw how many guns the Allies really had. By October 9th, all of the French and American guns were finally in place. At 3.30pm of the 9th, the French guns opened fire and drove the British frigate HMS Guadeloupe across the York River, where she was scuttled to prevent capture. At 5pm, the Americans themselves opened fire, and Washington fired the first gun, and legend has it that it smashed into a table where a British officer was eating. You can never escape the myth and lore of this war. But nonetheless, these Allied guns began to rip apart the British defenses. Washington ordered that all the guns fired through the night so the British had no chance to make their repairs. All of the British guns were soon silenced. Now, the British soldiers began to pitch their tents in the trenches, and soldiers began to desert in large numbers. And all the British ships that were able to make it into the harbor were damaged because some of the cannonballs from the Allied guns flew across the town and into the harbor. On October 10th, the Americans spotted a large house and believed that Cornwallis himself might be stationed there. They aimed at it and destroyed it. Cornwallis then sank more than a dozen of his ships in the harbor, and the French began to fire at the British ships and scored a hit on the HMS chariot, which caught on fire and in turn set two or three other ships on fire. Cornwallis then received word from Clinton that the British fleet was to depart on October 12th. However, Cornwallis responded by saying that he would not be able to hold out that long. On the night of October 11th, Washington ordered that the Americans dig a second parallel, this one to be 400 yards closer to the British line. But this one could not be extended to the river because there were two British readouts in the way. Remember, readouts number 9 and number 10. But Cornwallis did not expect that this new parallel was being dug. And by the morning of the 12th, the Allied troops were in position on the new line. On October 14th, the trenches of the British and the Americans, well, American and French, were within about 150 yards of readouts number 9 and 10. Washington ordered that all the guns within range begin blasting the readouts in order to weaken them for assault that evening. Washington would use the cover of the moonless night to lend to the element of surprise to reinforce the darkness, he added silence, ordering that no soldier should load his musket until reaching the fortifications. The advance would be made with only, quote, cold steel, end quote. Redoubt number 10 was near the river and had only about 70 men in it, while redoubt number 9 was a quarter mile inland and held 120 British and Hessian troops. Both redoubts were heavily fortified, Washington devised a plan in which the French could launch a diversionary attack on the Western Readout. Then, half an hour later, the French would assault Readout No. 9 and the Americans simultaneously attacking Readout No. 10. Readout number 9 was attacked by an overwhelming number of French soldiers, 400 to be exact, stormed over the 70-man Readout. And Readout number 10 would be assaulted by 400 light American infantry troops under the command of Alexander Hamilton. 400 men against the more powerful 120 men was still a wipeout. Now, on the morning of October 16th, more Allied guns were now in line, and the fire upon the British was intensified. In desperation, Cornwallis attempted to evacuate his troops across the York River, but only one of the wave of boats made it across. And when they returned to take more soldiers across, a squall hit, making the evacuation impossible. The fire on Yorktown from the Allies only got stronger and only got heavier as even new artillery pieces were still arriving at the line. Cornwallis talked to his officers and agreed that their situation was hopeless. On the morning of October 17th, a drummer appeared followed by an officer waving a white handkerchief. The American and French bombardment of Yorktown ceased. The officer was blindfolded and led to the American lines, and negotiations began on October 18th. Washington ordered that the French be given an equal share in every step of the surrender process, and the articles of capitulation were signed on October 19, 1781. Cornwallis' British men were declared prisoners of war, promised good treatment in American camps, and the officers were permitted to return home after taking their parole. Cornwallis, however, refused to meet formally with Washington and also refused to come to the ceremony of surrender, claiming he was ill. So instead, Brigadier General Charles O'Hara presented the sword of surrender to French General Rochambeau. Rochambeau, however, shook his head and pointed to George Washington, whereupon O'Hara then offered the sword of surrender to George Washington. But he himself refused to accept it, and he motioned to his second-in-command, Benjamin Lincoln, who, as we know, had been humiliated at the Battle of Charleston for him to accept it. And it was Benjamin Lincoln who accepted the sword of surrender. And soon after this defeat at Yorktown, the British and the Americans soon entered into peace negotiations, which granted the American nation full independence. And the British army would never be back in America ever again. I'm just kidding. They would. But it should be noted that the French involvement in this war was humongous. Look, the British had it in their power to keep this up. They could just keep sending more soldiers to America, but what was it worth? Because now with the French in the war, they had a real fight on their hands. There was no point wasting energy losing men to their cousins in the American colonies. So the American Revolution started as a bunch of upset people in New England, some in the South, The first shots were fired by drunk farmers, and the last shots were fired by elite French soldiers. The war changed, plans shifted, and the tides went from very pro-British to even, to pro-British again, to all of a sudden, the Americans with the upper hand. American independence paves way to now, what is arguably the most powerful nation, in the history of the world. And so with that, I end this series on the American Revolution. Thank you so much, and check back in next time for our next series, which I'm planning to just be one really long episode on a topic that has always interested me, the Praetorian Guard. After that, I'm thinking about another long run series. What's it gonna be about though? I don't know. As I'm gonna be studying abroad in London, going to let something inspire me in, in Europe. Maybe it'll be about the history of Western Europe. Maybe it'll be about England. I don't know. But thank you so much for listening to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen.